0: Welcome! You are now listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Show with Roshan Lugani, Eric Olson, and Adrian Nicholson. This show is an exploration of ideas to help you work towards your ideal retirement. Roshan Lugani and Eric Olson serve clients across the U.S. They offer financial planning and investment advice through Arate Wealth Advisors, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor, and securities through Arate Wealth Management, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC, and NFA. Get ready for the financial independence of your dreams.
1: Welcome to the Retirement Lifestyle Show. I'm your co-host, Roshan Langani, here as usual with Adrian Nicholson and Eric Olson. We have an important topic uh, for today. This is the last one in what's turned out to be a multi-series election-focused discussion. We want to talk to you about the markets, the election, uh, what to expect, and uh, we are less than two weeks two weeks away. We're recording the day after the the debate. So, uh, gentlemen, any any thoughts initially? Adrian, what did you think of the debate?
2: I thought it was a lot more organized this time I thought uh, it was very clear not a lot of people jumping over each other like last time so I thought it was a little bit more organized and staying on the topics and the issues that they were discussing whether it was the economy climate change healthcare, racial issues in the United States so I was really glad they were really kind of sticking to the, the the topics and the issues that were going on in today.
1: Uh, yeah, it definitely was. I'm sure you noticed this too, but the, you could see when the mics were off. Like there were certain times when either one was talking and it wasn't their turn and you, you could see their lips moving and kind of hear them, but not completely with the mics off. I, I It was definitely more organized. Eric, what did you think? Well, first of all, I didn't watch it from start to finish. I just,
3: uh, I had another event that was overlapping. And once I finally did start watching, I I kind of wanted to turn it off because I just didn't have patience for a lot of the stuff. But I would say it was a much more civil conversation this time than last. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. In some ways, I, I to a certain extent, I thought it was a ruinously bad debate for Donald Trump the first time around because of his interrupting. And so to a certain extent, strategically, if I had been, you know, thinking, advising the Democrats, I might've said, don't put a mute button because it's precisely his, his boorish behavior in the first one, that if we can get him to replicate it in the second one, we should see another dive in his, uh, in his polling. So I think the fact that it was more civil. Uh, to you know whether depending on your point of view probably it works in uh, to a certain extent in relative terms just on that one factor at least it works in uh, trump's favor so
1: we'll see how it's interpreted by the people though right yeah i was actually um i found that i've been able to sort of detach myself from um the fact that this is for the highest position in the country and if you're able to do that it actually is kind of entertaining like uh the the after the the first one uh i thought was just crazy and then i i was approaching this one like a sporting event like should i order wings and get get drinks and everything going for uh for this i should have thought (laughs) of that Uh, last night they had 89 cent there (laughs) (laughs) yeah
2: i mean i'm right there i'm right there with you roshan i mean i was surprised uh that night i was on social media and a lot of people my age were just posting about it like it was like a super bowl or sporting event kind of thing, like it was almost on every everywhere I went. It was pretty much uh, there, and people were like kicking back and like watching with like their friends, having like food and drinks and all that stuff. So I guess the entertainment element is definitely is definitely there on a very important moment in U.S. history. Maybe
3: we should just have a perpetual election with, you know, every Friday night, WWF
1: SmackDown or something like that. The Presidential Commission on Debates could just keep this this. Uh, that's party kind of going. what it was like, right? When wrestling shifted <laughs> from um, from being wrestling to them talking on the microphones, that's kind of what this was for a little while. Let's bring it to, to our topic though today: how the debate does line up. We want to talk about the election and the markets. We've got less than two weeks. And I know we've all we've all pulled some points of discussion today. Adrian, I'm going to start with you. Uh, what's what's uh, one of the points on your list of uh, the election, the markets?
2: Um, I'll just take this from a more individual standpoint. As, a, as an individual investor, I think it's important now to really look at your asset allocation. I think that's extremely important. What assets are you really invested in and what your percentage are to each one? the market has pretty much recovered a lot since what it was at in March. So maybe you might have a lot of exposure to stocks. And if that's where you want to be right now, if that's what your risk capacity could take, then, then that's what you should hold into. But if maybe you need to adjust that more to kind of fit who you are as an investor, it's time to really look at that and consider and see what type of adjustments you, you should be making. So, you're able to respond depending on what the outcome is, because there is a lot of uncertainty going into this election and markets really don't like uncertainty. So the biggest thing that you can do is just making sure your portfolio really reflects what you need in your financial plan, what you're going to need in the future and to make sure really important part where you should maybe start when it comes to the election and the marketplace and how it pertains to you as an individual.
1: Yeah that that's a a good point. I always think that getting back to your target allocations make make sense, right? It, it should reflect you as an as an investor. And Adrian, are you saying um almost regardless of who uh who wins if you're at
2: your asset allocation, that is uh, yeah, it's kind of where you should be. It's definitely a, it's definitely a starting point. And in our previous podcast, we also talked about the defensive strategies and opportunistic strategies, and that, that's, that's great. But again, you have to really look at what you can take and what you cannot take when it comes to investing in certain asset classes, and especially when there's uncertainty in the market, just to really go back to your investing principles and really stick to it in a, in a tough time, especially when there's uncertainty into the, in the market.
3: And let me just chime in there uh, for those of our listeners who have not heard them. If you are wondering what's this that they're referencing in terms of these earlier episodes, I think it's episodes 20 through, twenty-two through twenty-seven, with the exception of I think episode twenty-six. So in those five of those six episodes in succession, we dealt at length with various aspects of this, and we worked from the the assumption at the outset that. Uh, since the polls were showing that at the time, the, uh, we were working from the vantage point of let's assume a democratic sweep. So, if you're interested to hear that, it's again available to episodes twenty through twenty-two to twenty-seven minus uh, twenty-six, I think.
1: And Eric, while you're while you're talking about the episodes, let me actually ask you about one of your one of your points on this. What are, what's uh, an important point you're seeing with the elections and what you can do as an investor? Well, first, I, let me just respond to what Adrian said because he's talking
3: about portfolio positioning in the face of this. Um, this isn't so much working from policy, from a policy standpoint, and what the various uh, candidates' policies or the party's policy proposals might do for the markets or for the economy, but just looking at the election process itself. So earlier this week, we had the Supreme Court rule to not override the, the uh, Pennsylvania Supreme Court to allow. The uh, people to submit ballots as late as three days after the election, with no clear evidence that they were postmarked on or before the election. So I think we're going to have, and that's just one example (laughs) of a, a completely different approach to the election this time, which is, I think, going to lead to a prolonged uncertainty about the actual outcome. Even if the, I mean, we've talked there's been this uh, a phrase developed, the red mirage, even if it were a seemingly that Donald Trump had won the, the measurable vote by election night, that doesn't mean that there wouldn't be inflows of mail-in ballots that would be changing the outcome of that election. And then I think there will be plentiful amounts of litigation in the event that that's true. Particularly if the the mail ins would change the outcome of the election. So I say that because if there, it, as you Adrian said, if markets do not like uncertainty, and we all agree on that point, that prolonged uncertainty could be could be rough for the markets for a while. Which doesn't mean again that it that a year or two or five or ten from now that your portfolio would have suffered you just would have had to have braced yourself in the interim for some amount of heightened volatility i th- i think that's that's something to be expected unless there is an overwhelmingly decisive outcome on election night in which case then you can measure or at least make some inferences that the mail-ins could not could not override that outcome but i it does, i don't think we're there uh we might be, but I don't think we're
1: there we'll we'll know and what is it yeah well and Eric, you bring up a few a few things I want to explore this a little bit um, uncertainty is bad for the markets. a contested election is the one negative outcome right what what i've what I've been researching and seeing is uh, uh, regardless of the reason whoever wins, I actually think the markets will react positively to it just depends on when like immediately after there'll probably be a little bit of reshuffling and down markets because of different, uh, different people in power. But if you fast forward six months, a year down the road, I think with all the stimulus, the markets will be up, um, either way. But if you have this uncertain time frame, let's say, let's say hypothetically, I'm concerned about this uncertain. I believe that's going to be the outcome. And for all our listeners, these are not recommendations. We are licensed and we're, we're not giving you recommendations on a podcast. So, uh, these aren't recommendations. I just want to explore this hypothetically. So, Eric, I come to you and I say, I'm worried about this uncertainty. I uh, I want to put all of my investments in, uh, against this scenario of uncertainty. And I know you you would try to convince me not to do that. Just be a good advisor to bet on one concept or, or idea. But let's say I wanted to do that. What would what would you do if you if if I'm Thinking this mark, this election will be contested. That'll lead to drops in the market and volatility. How do I prepare in advance? So there's, it depends on whether you're more uh,
3: inclined to do a significant portfolio recomposition. All of it. I want to
1: put all my money on this one idea. This one idea. Not a good idea to not a good, not that (laughs) the idea is bad. I'm just saying doing one idea in your portfolio. I, I'm sure you're thinking that's nuts. Uh, I just like these uh, extreme examples to, I think they help get the point across. I suppose, uh, so th- you
3: are more uh, aware of the of the risks and the opportunities in this category than I, Roshan, but I think if that were the case and I had to go with all one idea, and again, I'm thinking this is a terrible idea to go with one idea, but if, <laughs> Agree. if you're asking me in this scenario, I think the the properties of options make for, Make for uh, an interesting way to position your portfolio or protect your portfolio. so if you said hey i'm gonna have i'm gonna have i'm gonna i'm gonna buy some put options and I'm gonna buy some call options out of the money and uh, I'll know that the market is probably gonna go one direction or the other and if it goes and the reason I say out of the money incidentally is uh, and I'll explain that for our listeners in just a moment, but the reason i, expl- I, I no, I should explain that and then give the concept. When we say in the money or out of the money, we've talked about options before and if you want to go back, I think it was episode 26 in which we went through and we talked about different tools and I think options was part of that. Well, hold on, Eric, I'm going ba- I'm going to back you up that. a
1: little bit, even even further. And sure. let's go with some simple simple numbers and examples. So options in general are a leverage way to uh bet on a idea. Leverage meaning you you can take one dollar and invest it as if it's five, ten, or twenty, depending on how you're how how you're doing this. And you're not actually buying the security; you're buying the option to buy or sell a security. Uh, and Eric, as you were saying, out of the money or in the money. If uh, if the a stock is trading at hundred dollars, and you're betting that it'll go up, if you buy an option that is at a strike price at one oh five, that means that's the price where you're actually starting to be profitable that's out of money. because market. the market isn't there yet that's why we say out of the money exactly and same thing on the way down eric you mentioned put options if you buy puts you're betting the market will go down if the market's at 100 and you're buying it at 95 that means the market has to drop below 95 to get there meaning it's out of the money right and in the money would be either i buy a put and a call at
3: 100 or i actually buy a call at 95 and, and, I, and I buy a put at 105, so either way. But I, the, the reason I say out of the money is just because I think at this point it's a little too expensive to do it in the money. So, and I'm trying to think of a strategy that doesn't get too crazy. If the markets don't go crazy, if there isn't a lot of volatility, that's uh, folks, I'm not saying the markets are going to go crazy. I just think there's going to be heightened volatility, which isn't the same as going crazy. But if the markets go dramatically up, then my put option. Well, I paid money for it, but it expires worthless, but I'm able to exercise my my call and buy what is now a much higher market at a at a price much closer to where it originally was. Or if the market drops significantly, then my call option expires worthless. I had to pay for that, but it didn't harm me hopefully too much. But my put option now, which using the example that you gave Roshan, which I had set at 95, if the market has dropped to 70, I'm not saying it will, I'm just saying if it hit if it did, I would be able to sell my positions to someone else. When the market is trading at 70, I'll be able to sell those positions for 95. So, but again, I'm going to come back to this. Why did you offer this one, one the scenario where I can only do one thing? So that's, folks, I'm just responding to this wicked, <laughs> wicked request of Roshan. To always simplify it to the worst extreme
1: well yeah and, and i'll tell you i i have a different response to that same question i want to okay. uh give adrian a chance to chime in though so adrian if i come to you and i say uh i think there's going to be uh, the election will be uncertain it'll be contested there'll be lawsuits and i think that'll uh create volatility in the market and i want to invest everything i've got to this one concept you what would you what would you uh say to do
2: well, I, the first thing I'll say is, they're in the market. There's always ways to uh, reflect your beliefs. So, I, so I think that's uh, what really what you're you're going for. And I'll it kind of explore all those options to see which one first one, would be the most damaging to you, and which one you would be most comfortable and most suited for. That would overall not only protect your portfolio, but you'd be able to get those. As, many ga- as much gains as you possibly could because you're trying to again reflect your, your belief in this outcome. So I think that would be the biggest thing to try and lay out all your options and, and looking at all those options, doing the research, looking at the data and seeing what would be the best way to go about this because there are a lot of investing tools, investing vehicles out there. We mentioned options, leverage, inverse ETFs. There's, there's just a number of them and to really narrow it down to see which one would be the best for you i think is a great starting point
1: yep yeah, definitely looking at the different things available and choosing them eric i'll tell you what i was thinking with that same question um uh, and adrian i definitely researching it and looking into where to go so eric i would say yours has the highest potential for profiting on uncertainty right in either direction that would that would you would profit from uncertainty i was actually taking a little bit of a different thought and i was saying I'd probably go to cash, right? And just because uh, if I think things will go down, I go to cash, and then I can go in and get a uh, get it at a at a deal. Uh, just because my expectation is that um, a contested election leads to declining markets. Uh, so it, it if if this person came to me and came to you, and I said go to cash, and you said buy put options. I'm definitely agreeing that your the put options would make more money. There's no arguing uh arguing that at all. The whole reason I was thinking go to cash though is just because uh as, and I'm sure you you were thinking this the put options are just riskier, right? You can depending on how you do it, you could literally lose everything in this portfolio with put options or make a killing, right? <laughs> Whereas on mine I that with the cash, I think you can wait it out and buy and your your worst outcome is missing the opportunity
2: of the gains. Yeah, and I think uh, liquidity is an important part when it comes to opportunity depending on where what your asset allocation is, being having a portion in money markets or cash, whatever it whatever it may be will give you the opportunity to respond or capitalize on certain opportunities. So I, I
3: guess I would say I don't think I would lose everything in this strategy. Because I would lose, I would certainly lose, there's a possibility if the markets stay in a very narrow range, that I could lose the cost of both the put option that I purchased and the call option that I purchased. But if it moves, if if there is indeed a spike in volatility, it would move one way or the other. And if I just don't know which, then I would be able to, I would be able to profit, I think, enough on the one side to cover the cost of the of the other side of that that
1: expired worthless And eric I, i'm not i i'm just saying it is it's conceptually possible you get these short-term calls that and the market doesn't move and they expire worthless thus losing it all now you'd probably you see what i mean I, i'm not saying you would do that i'm just your scenario to me has a lot more profit potential and a lot more loss potential Whereas my, mine is more opportunity cost. Not saying yours is worse, right? If the markets shoot in either direction, you'll make a whole lot of more money doing that. Doing that than the yeah, And I, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna call it yours or mine. I'm just gonna say the concept of the options, uh, and I believe what you were describing is a spread uh, versus um, versus going to cash. they are very different uh, potential for gain and loss in that scenario. That that's kind of it. I I'm sorry, sorry for putting you on the spot like that. Just the uh, the gridlock. <laughs> Uh, and all this uncertainty that we were putting out there made me thinking, well, how can you actually execute on these ideas or what are some of the, the things we can come up with? But Adrian, as you said very well, there is a lot more than you, that you can do than just these two things we came up with, uh, off the top of our head. And you've got to figure out where the risk, uh, reward parameters fall in line. Like if you, you can take your entire portfolio towards the concept and, bet so much you could lose it all or take your entire portfolio towards this one concept and have actually very little uh, risk involved. Let's go on though to the next thing. Next thing on our list, I wanna, I wanna throw one thing I, I read from multiple sources and this is going, uh, this concept really, the first I saw talk of this was about two weeks ago and the concept was the markets are all driven by stimulus. So uh, a Democrat sweep well, uh, if the Democrats sweep, that's the best thing. And even though that would mean tax hikes, the stimulus would far outweigh them. So that would be the best for the markets. I'd love your your thoughts on this. Adrian, you want to respond to that? You can start out, Eric. OK, so
3: I would say it's likely that there would be a stimulus, on, as you have said, um, if it's an all Democrat um, House, Senate and White House. No question. And, um, and that absolutely, uh, we, we've seen that, uh, the combination of fiscal policy that by that folks, we mean spending and, uh, then, and, and also at, we mean tax policy to a certain extent, although it's slightly, um, hived out from that. And then monetary policy, which is to a large extent in the hands of the federal reserve, those two things those two things have a significant impact obviously on where the markets will go but i would say if you look at it um you have to look at it i think in short term and long term and you have to look at it uh both from the vantage point of markets and economies so in the there's a saying that uh, uh i think was was this a tri- i think this was attributed to benjamin graham um which was that um, in the short term the markets are a betting machine and in the long run they're a weighing machine is it am i getting that attribution correct that it's benjamin graham voting machine okay and uh what, what did i say a uh, betting a betting machine yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay a voting machine and a weighing machine so in this case if uh, if you you know inject a big fiscal stimulus into the into the um economy the markets will respond well to that, both because of the actual um, uh, economic activity that that fuels, but also I think they view the markets view that as positive, and so there's a psychological effect. The question is, is in all these things, and this isn't true strictly, you know, this isn't true for one party or just the other; it's true for both parties. You have to ask what's the long term economic impact of that, and that will feed back into. What's taking place um, in in the markets? On top of that, I w- would say the taxation policy question is another uh, is another element of it. In part because of the response of both um, investors to what might happen to companies if the corporate tax rate is changed, and then also how they might actually go about investing based on how their own taxes would be affected by all of this. And I so I, if at some point before we we end this podcast today I'd like to try to get into some of the nuts and bolts of the tax proposals that seem to be flowing from uh the Biden campaign and the Democratic Party. I say seem because this this campaign has been much less willing to be explicit and um extensive in their their statements about precisely what tax policies or fiscal policies they would pursue. I mean, for example, Elizabeth Warren's campaign very crystal clear about all their plans, and Bernie Sanders very clear about an extensive list of plans. Whereas in the Biden Biden administration uh, or the Biden campaign's case, it's they haven't been quite as specific and consistent about um, their their various tax and tax policy proposals and fiscal proposals so
1: but i would like to get into that because i think it's germane for our audience well let's do that now and i have to ask you before you start on that did you see uh 50 cent the rapper he said vote for trump i don't want to be 20 cent and he had a picture of um of biden's tax plan for new york and they started saying stuff like well i hear it's nice in texas because uh of how, how high the taxes are but but why don't you go ahead and start off what are you seeing? in the tax plan or what are you not seeing that you'd like to see when you say they have not been uh, forthright with uh, with their plan? For example, one of the categories that, so, so I'll just, I don't think this is the, the
3: most important part, but since you've asked that question, let me just respond to one of the parts that hasn't been as quite as clear. So a lot of our clients are investors not only in their tax deferred accounts like their IRAs, but also, they are investors in um, after-tax, what we call non-qualified in investment accounts, and those uh, those accounts are subject to taxes on the income generated from real estate investment trusts and from bonds, and then also from dividends uh, from stocks, and then also from capital gains in the the different things. And as our listeners undoubtedly understand, the taxes on qualified dividends and on long-term capital gains are 15 for most people, 20 for some. And in some cases, if you're affected by what's known as the net income investment tax, then there can they can layer on another 3.8%, bringing you to a 23.8% rate. But in any one of those, whichever of those rates is yours, those are going to be lower than your ordinary income tax. And none of those are, is affected by a payroll tax. By that, I mean Social Security and Medicare uh, withholdings. And so in the Biden uh, proposal, there is, uh, as, as I understand it, if your income at the household level is above $400,000, and by the way, most of our listeners are not in that category, but, but many of our clients are. So if your income is in excess of $400,000, then, number one, on that income, on the earned income, the they are uh, the the um, best understanding of what they've proposed is to layer a twelve point four percent payroll tax on that income. So in other words, it phases out about hundred and thirty thousand dollars, and then you just keep paying Medicare at, at two point nine if you're self-employed or, or and half that if you're if you're uh, a w two employee. But what they would under this plan at four hundred thousand and above, they'd kick back in onto the twelve point four or again, if you're that's if you're a small business or a partner, or you know half of that if you're a w two employee, your employer paying the other half of that but here's the here's the part that isn't a hundred percent clear. They're saying the Biden proposal is we want to treat if you're above that level, we want to treat your capital gains and your dividend income in, in in any of your investment income at the same rate as your earned income meaning that it would be potentially as high as under current tax law 39% you know 39 and change close to 40% if you layer on the medicare component and the restore the 12.4 on the in, uh, as a payroll tax on your investment income Now you are being taxed at an effective rate of about 55% at the federal level on investment income with no special provision for long-term capital gains. And then if you're in a high-tax state, let's say like a California, where you at the marginal rate can go as high as I think it's 13.3, you're now paying in excess of 68% at a marginal level on your investment income. And so I think... what what will if that's the case and that's where we lack some clarity is about whether that payroll tax would be applied. But even if it's not, it's still it's pretty significant jump under this proposal. So what will and how will investors respond to that?
1: Will they be indifferent to that? Let me let me let me break break down some numbers on this. And I'm just I know I know Biden's numbers 400,000, but currently capital gains rate go up over 441. So you pay 15 percent in capital gains right now. If you have over four forty one four fifty in income, it goes up to twenty percent. So let's start at that number. Currently, let's say you're 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 over four fifty in income. You pay twenty percent in capital gains. Now, from what I've seen, and tell me if I'm mistaken, that that capital gains rate, uh, there is agreement that Biden is saying that capital gains rate will go to ordinary income, and that tax bracket is going to go up from the current. 35 percent number or um or let's even go higher let's say your income's even higher because the max right now is 37 so the top tax bracket would go to 39.6 so that's just an income your capital gains are going to go from 20 percent up to 39.6 so that part uh, in the biden plan that's clear and undisputed right you're going from roughly 20 to up up to 40 in capital gains correct right now the the part that's that's that there is not clarity on is the payroll tax part, whether that'll be added on or not, and wherever you live, the state tax is going to be added on, right? That that currently is the case, so that's nothing. That's nothing new. So let's um, let's break it down. So with what we know for sure, uh, with his new tax plan, you make and I'm I'm using that higher number again. Just he says over 400 it'll impact you, but just so I can use the top tax bracket. If you're single, it's over uh, 518 in income. If you're a cu- married filing joint, it's over 622. So if you're over either of those levels, you currently pay 20% in capital gains, that could go up to 39.6. Now, Eric, let's continue there. How do you think investors' behavior will change? The re- and let me just
3: come back. Why did I suggest that, you know, I said there's lack of clarity about the payroll tax being added onto that. I think that one of the principles that's been articulated is is that investors should not be given preferential treatment against wage earners. I think that's been a philosophical uh, premise of the Democratic Party platform. And so if that's the case, I'm thinking if they're saying, hey, we're going to apply this 12.4 to earned income, wage income, then consistent with our philosophical principle that the investment income should not be preferenced, then that leads me to believe that it's it's likely from a, to be philosophically consistent that they apply that additional 12.4% as well as the 2.9% yeah, for medicare. I'll tell
1: you I disagree with you that that's what they're going to do, but the reason I wanted the, the reason I disagree with you is cuz they just you've just never had payroll taxes on on capital gains income before, so I don't see how they'll they'll add that on. I'm not saying it's impossible nor am I saying you're wrong about it. I do disagree I just want to have our discussion be on what we know, right? What, what Biden has clearly said is that if you're over that income level, your, your bracket's going to go up to 39.6 and your capital gains rates will be taxed at ordinary income. And to me, that's sort of a big enough jump where any investor decision will likely be the same with or without the payroll tax added on. Right. So I think you asked me the
3: question uh, um, and I will answer it, but I've done more than my share of talking. So let me ask you guys what
1: you think the investor response would be to that. Well, no, I'll go, I'll go ahead and I'll tell you that the first thing I'd say, if you're an investor uh, I could see investors moving more of their money to tax deferred accounts from taxable. Right. So, and um, uh, I hate talking about annuities ever because people really passionately are for or against them. And my response to, to that is uh, it's right for some people, it's wrong for other people. Let's figure out what's right for for the individual that I'm talking to. But anyway, the whole point, I, the advantage to, to something like a, a variable annuity is the money goes in it uh, on an after-tax basis. You don't pay taxes every year, and when you take it out, you're taxed at ordinary income. The knock on annuities was that um, if you just invested and you got a more favorable capital gains rate, you'd pay a lower tax. So my first thought would be, especially now, um, annuities, another big knock on annuities is they were very expensive. They used to lock you in. And now there are a bunch of low-cost annuities that let you move in and out. So if you eliminate the historical knocks on annuities and you introduce something where you could pay taxes every year and now there is no tax differential, it's ordinary income in either case, I could see annuity sales going up. Maybe we should then invest in insurance companies. Because uh, annuity sales would go would go up, I think that would be the first. uh, I think the first natural reaction that comes to mind. Well, first of all, I think you're right. So
3: clients are not, you know, our 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 clients and our listeners are are not insensitive to uh, tax policy, and so I think you're right that these low cost, um, completely liquid versions of annuities there will be wider adoption of that simply because for clients and listeners, I mean, who are not acquainted with the tax treatment of these, the money that you put in there is tax deferred. And so you pay taxes on it when it comes out as income and you pay ordinary income uh, taxes on that. But which for some people means you can time it to a point in your future when you, your earned income might not be as high, maybe you're retired, and as a result, you're now back in a lower tax bracket, and you can start taking money out at a lower rate. So there's, so I think that's one option. I think of uh, some forms of cash, cash value life insurance, uh, which has similar properties to that. In fact, uh, potentially, potentially withdrawals can be made without uh, paying taxes but i think another one would be exchange traded funds in, in that are um not dividend paying uh that in other words there's been a real a preference among many investors for high dividend uh you know high dividend stocks and high dividend etfs i think in this case they'll be saying hey let me opt for the let me opt for the low dividend version because now i can i can keep this locked in locked up in the what is in every other way, a very
1: tax-efficient structure—the exchange-traded fund. Well, Eric, let me let me jump in here for for a second and and just go go on to uh, continuing on on your theme. So you're saying that um, dividends get paid to you, and you as the investor don't control them. They get paid by the corporation, and they're if they're qualified, you get tax favorable treatment. So you're saying that you'll see more money flowing away from dividend stocks, so that you can control it. Uh, And I was interrupting you just because I could see this going a step further. If you're a corporation now, wouldn't you then favor stock buybacks over dividend payments? Your investor can then choose to sell whenever they want and pay the tax by selling their shares versus getting dividends um, uh, when the corporation decides. Yes, I think that's going to be a
3: rational response on the part of corporations, although I will note... While I haven't heard the Biden campaign talk about this, I'm 90% sure that it was the Warren campaign that had been saying they wanted to look closely at restricting buybacks again. I'll ha- please, I, I I should probably check that before I say it. So listeners, please understand I, this is just from a deep memory. I didn't come prepared with that fact, and if I'm wrong, I apologize in advance. But the um, but but I think there is that sentiment to say because they recognize the maneuver that this pro- this provides uh to avoid that that tax pro or that tax avoidance strategy is uh that they would just restrict it i
1: have one other big point that i want to get to well just on the tax point i would i would also say that um uh, people have always figured out a way around these things right uh, not tax evasion not illegal tax avoidance so i also think whatever the new tax plan is somebody's going to come up with some really good idea on how to minimize those those taxes.
2: Yeah, exactly. And we talked about it in a previous podcast, finding the right asset for the right account too is extremely important. And we, we sometimes focus on the, the cost structure of certain assets, but going into an election and during this time, knowing the tax implications and how they can change is also a very crucial element to all this. So it's all really great points that. Uh, we're bringing up especially in light of this election coming up but yeah Eric you can continue on that point that you had yeah Eric you said you have one more point to make well I, I have 10 more points but I'm going to lead
3: leave with one, one I got one too I'll, you as the moderator <laughs> decide so the um uh, we're talking about markets and economies right and how they would respond to one or the other so I think it is um, one other thing that we've talked about so far, we've been really isolated on, uh, on, with respect at least to tax on the personal income tax treatment. But I think it's also important to think about the corporate income tax treatment. And so, let me just start with a little bit of a history lesson. So, over the last forty years or so, worldwide corporate income tax rates have been consistently dropping. There, it was in the in the eighties. It was common worldwide for the corporate income tax to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 40%. Over time, there's been this this competition among countries to bring that lower and lower and lower. Why? Why Why would countries do that? Why would they alter their corporate tax policy? Because it is just like in a regular market economy where the person who can sell a set of headphones for a few cents or a few dollars less than someone else co- selling a comparably good um, pair, uh, you know that, that price competition is they're looking to win consumers to their equally good but lower cost product. Well, it's the same thing in the international competition for business development. And comp- corporations are looking in many instances where they have a choice, multinationals at least, when they have a choice about where they're going to focus most of their their taxable their taxable activity they're going to look for the place where they're going to have the most favorable tax treatment and so the united states had been on the uh, on the high side of the median it had been cu- coming down but it was on the high side of the median and wasn't moving down as quickly as other countries were well with with the um with the Trump administration corporate tax rates were cut to 21% which was not dramatically lower than the median but somewhat lower about 3% lower than the median uh, tax rate among developed countries around the world I'm I'm leaving out developing countries for reasons I think are obvious their economies are smaller
1: and so in some and their philosophies sometimes are Eric, somewhat you more... have to note this for the for the listener it went from 35 to 21. That's huge. It was right. 35. Before. Huge, huge. And with that, you so
3: the the if you're a corporation and you think this could be a permanent change in policy, you're going to say, well, all else being equal, I'm now more inclined than I was before that change was made to do business in the United States, which has a benefit to the economy and which has a benefit for the markets. But if you now say to companies, "Hey, we're going to raise it—not all the way back to 35, but we're going to, we're going to split more or less the difference, and we're going to raise it uh, 7% of the 14% where they were dropped, and put it at 28." We're now again on the upper, we're above the median. We're, we're now we've said we want to move to a position of less competitiveness—not as bad as we were before, but less competitive than we were bef- than we than we were at 21 what will that do i think the initial the uh, a rational response would be is my stock of xyz corporation now worth as much if beginning tomorrow it's going to have to cough up 7 more percent of its profits to the government and instead instead of distributing them to me as an investor or Either in the form of dividends, or in the form of internal reinvestment, or in the form of stock buybacks, one way or another, that's not helping my company, and therefore I don't look at my stock as being worth as XYZ stock as worth as much tomorrow as I as I thought it would be. So I'm gonna I'm gonna sell a, a some of those shares, or whatever the case might be. I my point is is that I think the the higher the tax rate. On companies that don't have quite the capacity to locate their profits wherever they want to worldwide, that will be that will be all else being equal, penalizing those those stocks because of those companies' profitability
1: uh, on an after tax basis. Yeah, and I think that's off. the more direct line you were talking about people selling shares, but it'll directly lower their earnings. I think there's a couple other things you mentioned that that I want to give further uh, information on. First is. Um, uh i just found via the tax foundation org site that um across 176 uh countries the average is 24.18 so you were de- describing us uh as the united states going above uh the mean so 24.18 is the mean and we'd be uh going above that uh as you said with with the new biden plan and then just for comparison purposes. Uh, the highest ra- income tax rate, I'm sorry, excuse me, highest corporate tax rate that they have is the United Arab Emirates is at 55% and the low is uh, Barbados at 5.5. So I wanted to give the uh, range as well as the um, the median. I don't want to get overly geeky about this, but you have to actually, you have to look at two tax rates
3: in conjunction with one another to arrive at what is the full full corporate tax rate. So if you say, hey, the corporate tax rate is at 28, but then when they distribute dividends to an investor class, that investor class now has X the amount that they then pay on the dividends, that's really a kind of double taxation. Wait, The profits were taxed once, but then when those the after-tax profits are distributed to investors, uh-oh, they've got another tax rate. So you have to put those two tax rates together. It's not purely additive. It's tax rate number one, and then tax rate number two on the remainder. So it's, but if you're looking at somewhere then in in some cases, let's say a 40 or 45% tax rate in, in when the two are put in conjunction
1: with one another, it's really, really harmful. If you look at Biden's plan and you're a top income earner at 39.6, and then your the corporate tax rate is now, um, what was it? 20, 28. So you're at uh, you're at fifty sixty seven percent. Yeah,
3: and folks, here's the math on that. So the the twenty eight percent on a hundred percent of the profits that that's at the corporate level. Now seventy two percent of the profits are distributed, and someone pays let's say forty percent on the seventy two. That's another effect. We'll just round it. We'll just say that's another twenty eight percent. So twenty eight and twenty eight. That's fifty six percent of the profits before the the government got to capture those, and the investor was left with forty two. So and then there's state tax on that as well. And if you're in California, have fun with that, because now you're paying 13% on, on the 72. And so now we're back. It's another 10%. And so it's 68%. So you got, and then final result, a very profitable company, 32% actually got to flow to somebody other than the government's.
1: Well, and then uh, the other thing with with you know, thinking everyone working from home, pandemic and the way technology is now, Um If you're a corporation, why not move to Barbados and pay five and a half (laughs) percent? (laughs) Yeah. So some people, and then I think many of our listeners are
3: are going to say, "Hey, what, Eric? You know, you clearly have been highlighting the adverse result, and and the energy in your voice betrays that you view this as somehow unjust." And but what you're not commenting on is all the good that those the the 60 you know the 58 or the you know the the 68% out of every dollar of corporate profitability that is flowing to governments is actually going to be used for good things. And so listen, I understand uh, I do I certainly do understand that. It's um it's just the it's the um you know so that we we have to have then I think a conversation about whether uh, the good that an individual might be able to do with their own funds not just for themselves, but for others, versus the good that the society would do um, with those funds through the auspices of the of federal and state governments, you know which of those is a better social outcome. but I, uh, I, I'm dismayed. I will acknowledge that <laughs> the prospect that uh, the taxes could capture that much of of the energies and the, the final profits of these companies.
1: Uh, yeah, I'm sure that can be heard in your voice. And I, I mean, the numbers are what they are, <laughs> you know, with the, with, uh, with that, I want to give one final point in closing, get your thoughts on it. And, um, uh, and then we, we can uh, wrap up this, this episode. But the one thing is, um, regardless of who wins, you fast forward, uh, let's say six months to a year. The markets, the markets will be up, and I'll give you some data on it. And I'd love both of your thoughts. If you have a unified Republican, uh, you know, uh, Congress and President average rate of uh, average S and P rate of return is fourteen and a half. Unified Democrat fourteen and a half. Divided with the Democratic President fifteen point nine four. Divided with the Republican President six point nine nine. You could argue on some of these that there isn't enough data, so I won't necessarily argue uh, argue the statistical relevance of it but those are the numbers so if those are the numbers doesn't that kind of say no matter who wins in general things go up and if you uh, historically going up the most is with a democratic president it's slightly different the uh the extremes are slightly different both both positive so is a lot of this uh people like us just trying to uh have listeners to a podcast sell newspapers or sell ads on tv i wouldn't say so i would say i think we want our clients to be mindful
3: of some of the, you know, the things that don't get discussed a lot. You, we hear a lot of the politics and lots of the debates have not really been diving into the details of tax policy, uh, but I, or fiscal policy, but I want to throw a few, a few leads to people and we'll, um, we'll post these in the show notes, but as you can imagine, um, different analytical organizations, Um, have developed models and these are econometric models so that they they by that I mean they use statistical procedures uh, to try to forecast what a shift in this amount of fiscal activity this amount of spending or this amount of taxation uh, what that would accomplish as it filters through the economy over a long period of time and of course, every one of those models has not is not strictly based on empirical information. In some cases, it's based on assumptions, and those assumptions can be uh, lead to very different outcomes. But I want to point you to some studies that you can look at yourself, because I know some of our listeners are are research hounds like this. And um, and this this is from left to right to center. So you. Roshan mentioned the Tax Foundation. So I would encourage you to go to taxfoundation.org and you can track down their their study here from October. Many organizations have released tax policy analysis and fiscal analysis here just in mid-September to mid-October. Of 2020, because now they're really trying to get down to brass tacks with the most information that's been released by the campaigns. Again, not as much from the Biden campaign as historically been the case from uh, campaigns, both Republican and Democrat, but still it's there. So, taxfoundation.org. If you're looking for something that's on the um, definitely on the progressive end of the spectrum, you could look at the report coming out of Moody's Analytics. And that's led by Mark Zandi and his team. They're very—they're putting the likelihood of a Biden um, White House and a Republican Senate and a Democratic House as a forty percent probability, uh, and you and other scenarios with mix and match all the way out, uh, as uh, you know, with different probabilities assigned to that. But they are very bullish on the impact that a democratic control of all uh, the house senate and the white house very bullish on what the outcome would be if you're looking at the other end of the spectrum you'd be looking at things from the heritage foundation so they have released a study as well as the hoover institution as well as uh, as well as aei the american enterprise institute which is a libertarian uh think tank and then the um uh, Wharton School at uh, University of Pennsylvania has also done some analysis. So there, and finally, the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, has their their ten year forecasts. So, what I would encourage you to do is to dig into the numbers for yourself, and you'll you'll be able to ascertain which of these arguments you think is more plausible than the others but um, it, it certainly we're going to see some um, effects by this and i would just encourage you to to educate yourself acquaint yourself with this information and and you take that into account as you as you vote
1: if you haven't done so already yeah interestingly i saw that they're saying as much as i believe it's a third of votes may have already been cast nationally yeah it's a huge number huge number uh adrian eric anything else to add to uh or anything else to share with the listeners today
2: yeah, I like the resources you pointed out, Eric, and I think that's just important just looking at the numbers and data and research now, especially during an emotionally charged time. It's always important to really just navigate the best you can through it just to make sure you're really on track with your goals and you're really you're really staying the course. So that's always a, a good place to start. Yeah. Adrian, I
1: like that. You've all, you've said this a few times, but it always comes back to your goals and your plans. Uh, what will impact your, your life day to day to all our listeners, as we always say, thank you very much for joining us. We hope you found this, uh, helpful and, uh, that there's something you can actually do with the, with the information, please like subscribe, give us, give us five stars, tell your friends and family about us. Uh, this has been the retirement lifestyle show, and we'll be back again next week.
0: Thank you for listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Show. If you found this show helpful, gained knowledge, or enjoyed the time you spent with Roshan, Eric, and Adrian, tell your friends and leave us a five-star review. This will help others discover the show. To access our show notes, download any of the tools mentioned in today's podcast, or to ask us a question, go to retirewithroshan.com. That's retire with Roshan. R-O-S-H-A-N dot com. All opinions expressed by podcast hosts and guests are solely their own. While based on information they believe is reliable, neither Arete Wealth nor its affiliates warrants its completeness or accuracy, nor do their opinions reflect the opinion of Arete Wealth. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and should not be regarded as specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. Finally, our music is The Chance by Jason Shaw and Audionautics. It's part of the YouTube Audio Library and it's licensed under a Creative Commons license. Thank you for listening.